0: What we see today in Khartoum is effectively the same, what, what it started as, this, as, as, as a campaign to fight Darfur rebels and to burn villages and, you know, to cause mayhem. But now uh, it's a bit of a, like a chicken came home to lose. Medieval crimes are being committed.
1: I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes
2: want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net.
1: All right. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Much of the world's attention has been on the evacuation of foreigners from Sudan and I'm sure will also be on the humanitarian crisis and the refugees and internally displaced. Meanwhile, the fighting is continuing, as far as we know, as we're recording, and ceasefires seem to just come and go.
3: We usually cover Sudan in the context of possible war crimes cases, but to understand a bit more about what's going on and how we got here, and especially how the current events intersect with the UN Security Council referral of Darfur to the International Criminal Court back in 2005, nearly 20 years ago. We thought we'd bring in a couple of great experts onto the show. First, there is Rebecca Hamilton. Hi, Rebecca. Hi there. Beck is a professor of law at the American University in Washington, D.C. She's the author of Fighting for Darfur, Public Action and the Struggle to Stop Genocide, which analyzes citizen activism and the efforts to stop mass atrocities. She has been a lawyer in the prosecutor's office of the ICC, working on cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, Uganda and Sudan. And prior to entering academia, she's worked as a journalist for the Washington Post and my current employer Reuters. She's also on the editorial board of the national security law publication, Just Security.
1: And we also have Tajuddin Abdallah-Adam, who's a Sudanese journalist now based in the UK. Hi Taj. Hi
0: Janet. How are you? Very well.
1: Great to have Taj here. He's the Country Project Advisor for Sudan at Internews Europe. He worked at one point for the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, CIDR, on Syria and Iraq. Uh, he's also worked at the BBC and at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting in The Hague. And that's how I know Tash because he was working on a radio production that I was working on as well called Fil Mazan, meaning on the scales we were trying to do justice programs way back in the day. Taj was also here with us in The Hague last year. So we're really happy to be able to invite you onto the show, Taj, having engaged with
3: you last year around uh, the ICC. So where to start? We read a lot about who is who right at the start of the fighting. So uh, maybe to get everybody up to speed, I imagine it's still worth asking everyone who are the main protagonist in this conflict that we currently have and how is it connected to Darfur?
0: Sadly, as you said, um, as you've been following the news, a conflict broke out between the Sudanese army led by General Al-Burhan and uh, the RSF forces led by Hemeti Mohammed Hamdan Douglo. Yeah, this conflict, of course, it, it, it has deeply um, rooted in the Darfur conflicts in the, since the early years. In 2003, when the conflict broke out. We know how the government responded in Khartoum um, by basically arming and mobilizing a tribally based militia elements from Darfur uh, in order to wage a war on the rebel as a counter-insurgency strategy. So basically, Hamiti comes uh, into that context. So he was at one point, he was a, a powerful militia leader in Darfur who was fighting the war on behalf of the government he grew into uh, his own capacity to become a leader of a paramilitary group now since 2003 2006 uh, 2000 say 2010 when elements of the groups uh, also accepted to join the government through a peace deal agreements and then the Darfur conflict sort of become like a low in, in- intensity conflict with uh, attacks against civilians continues in multiple directions because of, you know, the, the spread of arms, fires and this tribalization of the conflict. Hamiddi grew into more of uh, somebody who wanted to make his career as uh, a leader of the RSF forces. Continued to work with al-Bashir until 2007 when al-Bashir officially recognized the RSF forces as part of the Sudanese kind of organised or the regular military forces.
1: There's a load of detail there, which I think is probably really interesting. But just uh, to ask again a, a, a general question, are either of these two men kind of on, let's say, what we might think of as a suspect list for the ICC? Are these regarded as people who, because of the the roles they may have played back in Darfur back in the day, that they could be people that the ICC, in connection with its investigation into Darfur, could have said, one of these guys. Are, are, these, are these potential suspects?
0: Well, definitely they worked together in Darfur. They, Al-Burhan represented the government army, and Hamidti represented the militia, and they collaborated in a numerous fashion, uh, ways, in order to enforce that campaign. And while they were enforcing that campaign against the insurgents, they committed massive uh, human rights uh, violations in terms of killings and, uh, and that all sorts of the crimes that the ICC was interested uh, to look at. I believe, I believe both of them were mentioned in the ICC's indictment documents uh, relating to Darfur cases. So the answer is yes.
3: And if we now talk, so there's Hermetti, who runs, uh, who is the head of the RSF. And so this is in this case the kind of rebels and then there's the government. But the RSF is closely linked to what we in the Darfur case know much uh, the term of Janjaweed militia. Do I get, have I made the right connection here?
0: The basis, the basis of the RSF were kind of the Janjaweed rebranded. The Janjaweed kind of reformed, basically. I wouldn't say I wouldn't use the word the term reform, but the Janjaweed rebranded, reproduced in a, in a different level, in a more sophisticated uh, level of uh, them becoming like a part of the regular army allied with the government in fighting rebels. We know that in in one of these major battles against the Afor rebels, they were the you know the key government forces who. Uh, who kind of engaged with the rebels and inflicted losses in the ranks uh, within the ranks of the Darfur rebels? So, but if you go back, who are these people? These are the same militia forces, the same Janjaweed forces who were um, who started, you know, as tribal leaders. Of course, waging war uh, using tribal elements in Sudan is a new, not new thing. It's, it, it was there from the 80s. If you want to, you know, more of kind of a background detail, it goes back to the. 1980s, when the government was fighting the SPLM North, the kind of South Sudan rebel groups. At that point, um, you know, these these were the the, the tribal groups who were um, based on the border between Sudan and South Sudan, and the government exploited them, armed them, used them uh, to fight rebels there. And therefore, it became more of a you know a, a bigger industry. So this is a, what we see today in Khartoum is effectively. The same, what what it started as this, as 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 a campaign to fight the four rebels and to burn villages and you know to cause mayhem, but now uh, it's a bit of a, like a uh, chicken came home to roost.
3: Before we bring Beck in, I wanted to say uh, to our listeners that uh, we're doing this in a bit of a makeshift studio in my attic. So there is a child running around who has to go to bed. There are cats running around who do not like that we have taken over their attic. So there might be some noises in the background. But uh, Beck Taj explained that this is very much related to the Darfur conflict. And one of the things uh, we were wondering also from The ICC case, we know, of course, the former Sudanese president, al-Bashir. How is this all related to Bashir? Does he still uh, play a role? We know he's in a military hospital. There's an arrest warrant from the ICC, and he was convicted in Sudan on corruption charges. And, you know... Is it what is his role in this is there a role and do the players that are now at odds with each other do they want to keep him? Do they want to get rid of him? Is he a political possible pawn? Should we prepare for an extradition to The hague?
1: So fifteen questions in one cover it all back in just thirty seconds. <laughs>
4: And I'm actually going to ask your indulgence to start uh, the response back a bit further in time because I think it'll be helpful. Um, And Taj mentioned uh, that the strategy of using proxy militia began um, at at least as far back as as the 80s in the Second Sudanese Civil War. Uh, And it was really what was then called the National Islamic Front, um, subsequently rebranded as the National Congress Party, that sort of... Honed this approach of controlling the areas outside of Khartoum, the so called peripheral areas in Sudan, by arming young men, uh, not paying them, um, but basically saying, if you fight against our enemies in these areas, then you can get the spoils of war. And this approach of controlling the the country was honed in the south. It is something that Omar al Bashir absolutely um, adopted with a vengeance. Uh, And then, as Taj was saying, in 2003, when the rebels uh, began to make noises in Darfur, the same approach was used. The other thing that I think is really important in any Sudan conversation to understand is you've got this hugely wonderful, diverse country. And with that diversity comes challenges, and we can think about this in Darfur where you've had conflicts over land use. So, you know, you've got, on the one hand, farmers who are are fairly settled in their land and then pastoralists that are coming through um, with, with camels or cattle, depending on where you are. And there have always been disputes over that land, but there were traditionally mechanisms to resolve those disputes. What the proxy militia approach to governing Sudan, however, meant was that you armed one side and gave them the backing of the government. And it was arming the nomads, I should say, and predominantly the Rezagat, the Arab tribes in Darfur, that created the Janjaweed that, as Taj said, subsequently uh, were rebranded as the RSF and became under Hemedi's leadership. So all of that is to say that Omar al-Bashir is really a key story in, a key actor in how we got to this moment of even having a character like Himeti exist. Had it not been for that strategy of sort of controlling the country through these proxy militia, he would never have created the space for a man like Himeti to rise up into the position that he is in today. And originally, Omar al-Bashir brought Hamedi and the RSF to Khartoum because he was worried about a military coup and thought that the RSF would protect him against that. What happened, however, in 2019 was Hamedi decided, siding with the, uh, the Sudanese armed forces, to overthrow Bashir to turn against him. So that's sort of the back story on how Bashir fits into this. Now, during the transitional arrangement that was in place uh, starting in 2019, Bashir was imprisoned and on trial in Sudan. What we've been hearing is that perhaps Bashir, but certainly others um, from that long-standing um, and very deep-rooted Islamic movement in Sudan have broken out or been freed from prison in Sudan. And so certainly the latest that I've been hearing are concerns uh, that there is an effort afoot to bring back that old Islamic movement guard in the midst of this chaos that we're seeing right now.
1: Mm so i mean it just kind of begs so many questions and i'm sure that's difficult to answer in the midst of this chaos and and uncertainty. That's the focus kind of in Khartoum is on the fighting and the uh, the chaos that's going on there. Could I ask you both just very briefly to tell us what we know about what's going on in Darfur itself at the moment? And the reason for asking that is because the specific referral to the ICC was about the Darfur region. And I have seen some reports about there being very heavy fighting also in Darfur. So as long as it's not too off topic, Taj, uh, could you tell us, give us an update about what's happening in Darfur and how that relates to what we've been speaking about?
0: Indeed. So basically, as you said, uh, Janet, rightly, the beginning of this fighting, of course, the spark was in Khartoum, but then Darfur all of a sudden became the scene of it as well, uh, because both the army and the RSF were based there. They have a huge presence. And also in the lead up to the war, there was a kind of a concerted mobilization and recruitment from both sides in Darfur. Sadly, you know, the majority and most of these rank and file and the fighters, whether they are RSF forces or the members of the Sudanese you know, armed forces, they are coming from Darfur and other areas in the Sudanese peripheries, as uh, Rebecca was uh, saying earlier. there. And that explained the picture. You know, Darfur is remains uh, a highly kind of a uh, contested, militarized zone before, even before the uh, the breakout of the of the conflict in Khartoum. Hemeti as we, as I said earlier, you know, he became more ambitious over the, over the years. So he was he started after he ousted al Bashir. He was trying to be more of a person, of a, of a national hero who could take up a government and to become like some dominant figure at, at, the national, at, at the national stage. So the question of how much of these militia forces or the militia fighters who are attacking civilians in Darfur, you know, especially in Western uh, Darfur, he controls them effectively, is remained to be seen. There are certainly people who are affiliated to him, they are operating in, under his name, in his name, uh, they are saying we are RSF, but whether Hamilti was giving them orders to do what they were doing today in Darfur, we don't know because he was too busy in Khartoum. That doesn't, of course, exonerate him from, from this linkage, but I'm just explaining, you know, the situation is too much for him maybe to to deal with. The violence itself is was more uh, spread in, in, in Al-Ginayana, the capital of West Darfur, where armed militia fighters uh, affiliated to the rsF and others who are also based from uh, uh, you know took up arms from the local groups kind of engage and the result of that was uh, a total attacks on on the local market you know looting killing of people we are speaking about a few hundreds of people already uh, killed in Darfur and tens of if not uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees across into the neighboring Chad. Therefore, hasn't been always, you know, the focus on the SAF uh, or the Sudanese army when it comes to maintaining security or keeping peace. So it's it's, uh, it's totally abandoned by the army who was uh, very busy with Femiti uh, and by the uh, international community as well. As you said earlier, Janet, that the focus was more about evacuation and, and trying to, you know, put some, um, truths or cessation of hostilities still between the warring parties.
1: Just wondering, am I imagining too much to imagine that maybe this renewed conflict in Darfur could be something in the end that the international criminal courts could deal with?
4: So I think that the short answer to your question is yes. But I just wanted to say on, to double down on, on Taj's point about the international community having abandoned Darfur, that 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 certainly has been very visible in the last two weeks, but it has been apparent for years prior to this. And I think what might be surprising to listeners who don't spend their lives with their heads in Sudan is that the Darfur conflict never really ended. Uh, There wasn't a resolution. There wasn't a sustainable peace. There wasn't reconciliation. It just sort of fell out of the headlines Um, with a lot of unresolved issues still in play. So the 2019 is an important date because the Sudanese people overthrew Omar al-Bashir at that time with the help of Himeti and Barhan. But that was a moment that the international community could have done things very differently. They didn't. And one of the things that they did in that process of not being their best selves uh, was to end... Uh, what sort of peacekeeping support there had been in Darfur to withdraw the last vestiges of what had been um, peacekeeping oversight with UNAMID, And as a result, it's not only that there is no Sudanese army uh, security being provided in Darfur, but there's also nothing else. And this is an area where, unlike Khartoum, where we have pretty good visibility into it, it is much more difficult, much more challenging to get the reporting out of Darfur. Everything, though, that we're hearing, particularly from Janaina at the moment, um, sounds completely horrific.
3: And there was some reports, and I think uh, Taj also touched on it, uh, or or you did back, that they are freeing people, uh, former fighters from jail, I think we had a report on Reuters that they had set Haroun free, who is, of course, uh, under an ICC arrest warrant. He is one of the commanders of the government troops in Darfur. Uh, and there is another person, I think, on the Janjaweed government side that was on an arrest uh, warrant, uh, along with al Bashir, who was accused of genocide.
4: Yeah. So, yeah. Haroun was uh, Minister of the Interior. Ah, there we go. Um, at the time.
3: Yeah. Is there any chance that? with the conflict raging, going to be useful for the parties to send those people to The Hague so that they can keep quiet? Or are they all more or less more aligned to these people? So I
4: think the trouble is that every relevant player in this moment has blood on their hands. And so any of them would be implicated by any of the others of them, which means I don't think there is a way in which this plays out where it's in the of of certainly not interest in the interest of Hamedi, not in the interest of Brahan either, uh, to have someone testifying in the Hague.
3: So it's a Mexican standoff, essentially. Everybody has the gun pointed at everybody else and nobody moves.
1: Yeah. And again, just my kind of fancifulness, I wonder whether there's anybody within the office of the prosecutor who is thinking about how the ICC kind of rides off with some... Role, sort of helping to remove maybe maybe some of the actors from the from the sphere, and manages to do a deal with somebody. Is that the kind of calculus that might be going on in The Hague back? So, what
4: I would imagine the considerations are is whether going back to that 2005 UN Security Council referral, it's open ended, right? It, it is referring the situation in Darfur from first of July 2002. So they continue to have that jurisdiction, at least with respect to Darfur. So I'm hoping that they are looking to gather any evidence for subsequent prosecutions, I don't think – I think, Janet, maybe you're hoping you can kind of trade one off for the other here, and I and I don't see that playing out just because we are surrounded by bad actors in this situation and everybody is implicated. But I think this speaks to a bigger point um, that's really important for the purposes of this podcast in particular – is that I think one of the reasons that Sudan is in the situation that it is in today is because there has never been accountability. And we would be looking at a very different situation today if you had, in fact, seen prosecutions going forward for any of these people that are now have just gone from strength to strength. You know, Hemeti started off as a Janjaweed leader and then he became a sort of economic power broker with control over the gold mines in Darfur, RSF head, vice president, uh, now one of the most powerful and wealthy men in the country, instead of sitting in a jail cell where he probably should have been um, from the get go.
3: Taj, I've seen on Twitter there are calls, uh, there were commentators and ICC observers who were basically calling to. Uh, ICC prosecutor Khan that he should put out a statement uh, like he did in Ukraine where he kind of reminds parties that the ICC has jurisdiction over Darfur and they shouldn't do anything that uh, they might uh, or that the, that the court has jurisprudence over any alleged crimes that they are committing to kind of uh, see if that could be a deterrent effect. Is there any idea among the people in 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 Sudan that you speak to that you see that the ICC could have any kind of influence over this conflict or that somebody would be concerned about the ICC stepping in and looking at the current conflict?
0: i I really hope the ICC um, are doing more than yes I have seen uh, in terms of his statements and uh, I also um I, I was just like everybody reading that they were aware of, as you mentioned earlier also, uh, about the jailbreak uh, or, you know, the people who freed themselves or the leaders, including al-Bashir and others and Ahmad Haroun and the former uh, defence minister, Ibrahim Mohammed Hussein. So all the, like, the, you know, the main ICC indictees are out of prison in Khartoum. And uh, what I've seen is just some statement, yeah. Indeed, they were saying they were monitoring the situation and they are following it. But uh, I would say, of course, indeed, we would like to see more of a kind of a position, you know, a reiteration of their all commitments toward the violence, especially, you know, in the scope of their mandate in Darfur. And also, beyond, to be honest, uh, what is happening is, you know, these are the two people that, as we said from the beginning of this podcast, is that they were, started their violence in, in Darfur and now they moved to the rest of the country, uh, to the state that Sudan as a country is now, uh, it's integration, it's uh, unity, it's, uh, you know, human, you know, the security of its human society is jeopardized and hugely and immensely threatened. So I think more of aggressive uh, stand and position and, you know, work and, uh, and, and campaign by the ICC, it will definitely it will uh, it will work and uh, reminds uh, those you know warlords and and generals that you know justice will be uh, coming their way.
1: That's that's uh, hopeful, Taj. Uh, not too sure how realistic, but it's definitely hopeful. Maybe you should uh, remind uh, listeners that there is one quite small but significant Darfur trial going on at the ICC at the moment, Abdurrahman, and we're kind of wondering. I mean, just to start with, I'm wondering, is anybody interested in that at all? Taj, just to start with, is anybody following that trial in Sudan? I mean, before this latest, you know, violence, and therefore that's the main focus. But was anybody actually interested in it over the last year that it's been going on?
0: Um, Definitely, definitely there was um, interest by victim groups and by the wider society in, in Darfur, And it's also in Sudan as general, you know, in Sudan after the, you know, al-Bashir was ousted, there was also crimes committed by the security forces against protesters. And therefore, you know, there was this elements of people wanting to see also more international justice come to this, to the wider context. So definitely from that perspective, a lot of people were uh, looking at that trial, uh, what it could bring, you know, what the conclusion would be. Uh, So there was uh, media coverage around that. Yeah, not these days, but, you know, before the war, there was interest, uh, public interest in the trial.
1: And Beck, when you're saying there's been a big lack of accountability, is that kind of trial the kind of thing that you would be looking for in the future? You know, putting uh, sort of individual criminal... Responsibility like that, or do you think there's some kind of other process that is needed in Sudan? I'm thinking about the fact that it, that there seems to be this real ground movement involving all kinds of different types of people who were behind the revolution a few years ago. And I imagine that maybe there's more of a, of a sense of a need for. Truth to come out rather than a focus on something, sort of a processes over in the Hague, transferring people over there. What, what's your impression? So
4: I think it's a both-and situation rather than an either-or. And and just to highlight, so you're you're talking about what is now the, the neighbourhood resistance committees that were the backbone of the revolution, and um, they have been doing extraordinary work at trying to get accountability for something that, that Taj mentioned, which is referred to as the Khartoum Massacre, um, when the the army and the security forces turned against peaceful protesters. Um, so they're... Doing extraordinary work and have are continuing to do extraordinary work in terms of documentation and trying to push for accountability at the local level for those events at some future point that feels hard to imagine today, but, but we can certainly work towards. Um, it would be wonderful to see local trials in Sudan that, of course, would be closer to the survivor populations, and we're also going to need um, what is happening at the, at the Hague. And at every level, because this has been truly generations of turning one group of people in Sudan against the other, uh, what reconciliation looks like is going to be long and messy but also deeply, deeply necessary. And a conversation about sort of what is Sudanese identity and how does this incredibly diverse population come together and in a way that serves the democracy aspirations that certainly the youth have been absolutely crystal clear about their interest in.
0: Yeah, and thanks a lot, Rebecca, for you know highlighting that. You know, the, the, you, you also earlier to referred to the. The diversity, Sudan's diversity, in terms of a different shape of regions and people, and uh, cultures, and and uh, you know how this played into into the current conflict, and what needs to be done in terms of reconciliation, bringing everybody together in order to build the country, and I think you know a way out of this mess and maze mayhem that has you know um, being going on for years and decades it requires, you know, building an almost a, big, a nation from scratch and addressing and recognizing all those challenging and difficult issues, you know, of identities, you know, who are the Sudanese are, you know, and uh, what type of constitution need to have, you know, what type of governance, you know. I think beyond the element of justice, it, it has to be, you know, justice has to fall in this, you know, holistic kind of approach to try to tackle the Sudanese issue once and for all. I think that's uh, that's where you know, international efforts and, and peace building and keeping the country together. That's where the international support needed the most, because we've proven as a Sudanese. I, I hate to see this, but we spectacularly failed, you know, and miserably failed to do it ourselves. You know, I'm thinking about a situation where uh, the late Kufi Annan went to, Egypt, uh, to Sorry, went Kenya, you know, in the wake of the Rift Valley violence type of a situation in order to bring all these people together to form uh, a constitutional or uh, a constitutional docu- document to start with.
4: Can I just push back on the idea that the, the Sudanese have spectacularly failed? I was going to say it's the international community that has spectacularly failed the Sudanese, is the way that I would put it. The Sudanese did everything conceivably possible in ousting Bashir after 30 years of the international community being unable to do that. And, and presented this absolutely golden window of opportunity to begin that process of building a national identity from the ground up and fulfilling the democratic aspirations of the people, uh, but instead basically dropped the ball. So that would be my reframe.
3: Thank you very much for your insights on this. I think this is a very good backdrop that we can have for the stuff that we see at the ICC. And we see it's just the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing here and so much more is happening. And it sounds like it will be a long time before either accountability comes to uh, Sudan or before international justice is done with Sudan. So I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about this over the years. And we would love to come back to you both uh, whenever there are new developments.
1: So we uh, round off the podcast with a number of general questions. The first one is, is there something that you wanted to say, because we skated quite quickly over a kind of a history and understanding of, of, of how this is all related to Darfur. Is there something that either of you would like to add in first that we
4: missed during our first quick questions? So I've got a couple of things, actually, if that's all right. I I thought it might be helpful, and it actually goes back to your first question, for listeners to understand how it is that these two men, Burhan and Hermeti, who jointly overthrew uh, or helped in the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir are now the two men that are fighting to the death. And that is just to say that they were always in a very uneasy alliance that no one truly believed I think would hold in this transitional government. And they stayed together in the transitional government through until October 20. 20- 21, they worked together again to oust the civilians in the government. And it's only at the point where the issue came up of whether the RSF, which is the, obviously the paramilitary that Hametti that has control over, were going to be integrated into the Sudanese armed forces, um, that eventually this split occurred. So that's why uh, we see what we're seeing today. And, and ultimately, it's a battle between the two of them, for who has power and control in Sudan. Um, And none of that can be understood without understanding also the economic stakes involved for both of them uh, because the military and the security sector in Sudan is deeply, deeply tied to the plundering of of state resources.
1: Great. And anything else that you wanted to add in, Bec?
4: Just to say, you know, we so often have this trope of peace versus justice, right? And I think, unfortunately, What Darfur shows in bucket loads is that there isn't the possibility of sustainable peace without justice. Uh, That is the lesson of the past 20 years uh, that we've seen, unfortunately, Uh, and that making short-term political deals that seem to bring stability don't really serve the long-term long-term interests of, of the people. It's more convenient uh, for the Western diplomats that are flying in to say, look, we've got a peace agreement and, and we can go on our merry way. Um, and that stability will hold for a little while, but ultimately the the lack of justice um, rears its head again.
3: Attaj is there anything from your side that you would like to add to what you've already said?
0: I would just um, echo the same aspect. Yes. Uh, definitely, uh, all the makeshift effort and the, you know, like the resources and uh, diplomacy and the long engagement with Sudan in order to give a peace chance at the course of justice. You know, um, you know, always, you know, with the uh, this uh, notion of inter- uh, justice can wait a little bit. You know, uh, let's just uh, bring peace first. Didn't work. It failed, and now um, we are back to to square one. And also, it demonstrated, you know, to those who commit, you know, this violation, that you you can do it, and you can get away with murder, and you can, you know, and and sadly, you know, when I saw the uh, the heavy international community engagement around the production of the framework uh, framework agreement that eventually didn't materialize, because as Beck said, the RSF and the army didn't agree and couldn't agree on how to. Uh, on the question on the issue of the integration of the uh, RSF forces into the Sudanese army, all that debate completely ignored the issue of justice, including even the handing over, you know, to the, uh, to, the to the international uh, criminal court, the people who were still in jail, uh, you know, Bashir, and so he, that's that's the level of you know basically indifference toward I don't know how to call it, you know but just uh, ignoring the the question of justice completely when it comes to this equation, you know. And, uh, and that's really sad.
1: And the other question that we uh, usually try to round up with, which, I don't know, it sounds a little bit of an odd question to put to people who are so heavily sort of focused on the reality of what's happening in Sudan, but is there anything that you'd like to suggest to us in the way of reading or listening or watching that you've been doing recently. Maybe it's related to Darfur, maybe it's not, but is there anything that uh, that can be that can be recommended to our uh, listenership. What about you, Beck? Is there anything you'd like to recommend to us? I know that your book was, uh, even though it's an uh, an oldie, apparently it's a goodie, Still was re- was recommended to people. Uh, do you still recommend your own work, or have you got other people's that you want to put forward?
4: I I sort of wish I didn't, but it, I've I've been sort of pushed to reread something that I wrote, you know, more than ten years ago um, this week, and it's just. The lessons are painfully visible on the page, so that's quite depressing, actually, as as the author of that. Um, but what I would love to do is send you a list of Twitter handles for anyone who still is on <laughs> Twitter these days. Of the Sudanese that are doing incredible reporting um, in the midst of of conflict. I mean, I think there's there's going to be there are plenty of really good books on on Sudanese history, and they're all there for the taking, and they're important. But I I feel like at the moment, uh, certainly I am uh, just can't can't get past the sort of hourly updates of trying to understand what is what is happening on the ground. Uh, but there are some really good Sudanese citizen journalists, for want of a better word, um, that are getting out good information. Um, and I think it's worthwhile sharing those voices with with your listeners.
3: Thank you very much for those recommendations. We will put all the Twitter handles that back us and put them in the show notes for our readers and uh, possibly also tweet them out uh, so that you can look at these people and, and follow a bit of the news from Sudan yourself. I wanted to thank both of you, Beck and Taj, for taking the time out of your morning slash evening to talk to us and get us up to speed a bit about what's happening. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
4: And thank you for doing this. Uh, it's so important for us to put these pieces of history together and understand what happens when we don't keep uh, the push for justice going.
2: This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.